those of you who remain, whether here in person or on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We close out our look at this chapter this morning as we consider how to be a relevant church. Philippians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's Word. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's Word. Let's pray that He would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, Give us your word this morning, and not mine. Send your spirit to take your truth and apply it to our hearts and our lives, that we might be changed and molded and transformed to be more and more like our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So what would you say is the biggest threat to the relevance of the church in our world today. And just even think just about our own culture. What do you think is the biggest threat to the relevance of the church in our world today? I've read a lot about this, and you'll read some people who will say things like, uh, the biggest threat are some of these secular and godless ideologies We've labeled them all sorts of things. People rail against uh, CRT or uh, Christian nationalism or whatever it is. They say these are the biggest threats to the relevance of the church today. Others uh, see uh, the threat not just being these secular idolatries or or philosophies, but the, the lack of Uh, real power and influence from the church to the world and to the culture. So they strive after political gains and power. And if the pandemic has done anything, it's sort of accelerated a lot of trends that existed already before any of this happened. And as we look out at our culture... The church is declining in influence and power and even participation. We are less relevant now 
than perhaps we have been in quite some time. Why? Could it be, could it be that the greatest threat to our continued relevance in our society and in our culture and in the world, it isn't fighting against secular theologies and philosophies, as important as that may be. It's not clamoring for political or social power or influence. The biggest threat may just be our hesitance as believers to actually devote ourselves to being apprentices to Jesus Christ. Why is it that when the pandemic hit and we all went home, and we were all locked away, that church seemed less relevant. Why is it that it seems just easier or better to just watch a little bit of it on TV or catch up with church service later when we finished with our Netflix shows? Why is it that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power that He will use to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, the power that he uses to subject all things to himself, why does that power seem lacking in us? Paul calls us to here in this passage as he is trying to equip the the Philippian Christians to engage with the the secular forces in their city that are oppressing them, to stand fast against the, the godless ideologies that are beginning to infiltrate their thinking. The word that he gives them is strive to become more like Jesus. Devote yourselves to becoming his apprentices. Look to his provision. Seek his power to be at work in you. Remember how it is that you are connected to him. And let the glory of who he is work itself out in you as individuals, as a congregation, And see what God will do. How might things have been different if we had taken discipleship in our church, culture, broadly speaking, more seriously? So in this text, Paul invites us not to worry so much about the threats to relevance, but to examine ourselves and our own walk with Christ. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at his call to imitate those who imitate Christ. We're going to heed his warning to beware of idolatry that comes masked as faithfulness. We're going to consider his admonition for us to stand firm in this way in the Lord. 
So the first thing I'd like us to look at this morning is his admonition to imitate those who imitate Christ. He says it here in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What a bold call. I might think twice or three or four times before I get up here and say, y'all need to be more like me. Though I know some of you want to be more like me, I can be your barber if you'd like. But think about it. Who do you resemble most? There seems to be these forces at work in our culture that, that views opposition, that views adversaries, that views opponents and threats to whatever it is we're seeking to advance as things to be crushed. And so there, there is this hunger and thirst that I hear and see and read even among those who profess Christ to destroy those who would oppose their their aims. You see this harshness, this this unwavering moralism that says, I'm the best and you all need to be more like me. And if you're not, well, I'm going to say horrible and hurtful things about you. But that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is not setting himself up as this perfect, idealistic, un, uh, 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 holy, righteous uh, individual that everybody needs to be like. He just spent a whole bunch of time in the previous verses telling us, I'm not perfect. I haven't yet attained all of these things. I'm not yet like Christ. And But he says something here that he says elsewhere. We even read one of the places he says it in Corinthians. He says, imitate me. Look to those who follow in the example that you have from us. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. The point isn't to look at Paul, but to look at the one he resembles. To follow in the path of discipleship that he is walking. This isn't some sort of individualistic exercise. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. That's a call to the whole church. Brothers and sisters, fathers and daughters, join together and let's walk according to the way the disciples of Jesus ought to walk. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to that example. Earlier in this passage, he said, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Watch out for those who don't worship Christ and follow in the path that they ought. But here he says, but but look for those who do. You keep your eyes on them. You know, there's a saying, it's not just in the church, it's just a 
organizational health type of saying. But as the leadership goes, so goes the group. If the leaders are harsh and selfish and angry, that's going to start seeping into the group. If the leaders are prideful and arrogant and self-righteous, that's going to start seeping into the group. And what Paul is saying here is a challenge to the elders, the pastors, to the deacons, to the fathers, to the mothers, to any and all of us that have any position of influence. What example are you setting for those who are looking to you? Are you an example of zeal without knowledge? Passionate about a great many things, but not understanding the depth, the glory of who Christ is and what he's done. Are you an example of one who knows all the answers to all the things, has no love for others in their heart? Just stand in critical judgment over everyone. Are you an example of finding joy in pursuing selfish ambition, personal gain and reward? What what is the example that when those around you look at you, what do they see? I came to Christ in high school, middle school, I don't know, it kind of blurs together. I grew up in the church. I knew all these things. I came to Christ through the ministry of my youth pastor who just devoted himself to a bunch of kids. I thought that was normal. <laughs> like, like, of course somebody would want this as a job. And so many of the mannerisms that I still have they're his. I, I've, he's a pastor of a church in my hometown now. I've looked him up a couple times and watched some videos. And I, I, I have all these little mannerisms that I still see from him. And I don't regret that at all. He set an example for me of one who walked in the path of Christ. Was willing to give his time and his energy and his love to those who didn't earn it or deserve it. He was gentle and kind. He would call out unrighteousness and sin when he saw it. He would encourage repentance and faith. He was a disciple and is a disciple of Jesus. When people look at you, what are they following? Are they following a disciple of Christ? One who walks in the way that Jesus calls where you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him wherever he leads, do they see in you one who is struck to the core with the grace and the mercy of Christ such that you overflow with that same grace and mercy to others? Do they see one who is quick to apologize, who is 
putting no stock in their own righteousness. One whose very life and existence exalts the glory and majesty and lordship of Christ in all things. When people look at you, what do they see? When they hear you speak, what do they hear? What is the example that you set? Paul calls us as apprentices of Jesus to imitate those who imitate Christ. And that's a call for all of us because someone, somewhere, is looking at you. The second thing he tells us, you see in verses 18 and 19, he warns us to beware of idolatry masked as faith. He tells of these people, and there's a whole lot of debate among scholars as to who he's talking about here. These whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, who have minds set on earthly things. He sound like rank pagans, but, but Paul's not talking about pagans. He's actually talking about the same people he's been talking about throughout chapter 3. Those Judaizers who had come to the church in Philippi and elsewhere with a gospel that sounded like it was Christian, but actually had very little to do with Christ. This glory in their shame is a quote from Hosea 4, that passage that we read earlier. And those, uh, that phrase was applied to the, the people of Israel, to the leaders of Israel, who ought to have known better, and yet, though they knew who God was, they still found ways to twist what it is they believed, to follow idols of their own making while wrapping it up in religiosity. You see this most powerfully here in verse 18, where Paul says, they walk not as enemies of Christ, These false teachers are coming, proclaiming the name of Christ. They are are calling people to faith and repentance in Christ through the path of becoming uh, observant to the Jewish traditions first. They're not enemies of Christ. Paul here observes they they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They have no room in their worldview, no room in their thinking for a a Savior who suffered and died for their sins so that there is no place at all for our own righteousness before the throne of God. All these religious markers and badges and observances that they had, keeping of Sabbaths, the avoidance of certain foods, being circumcised in just the right way, being of the right heritage, having all the right traditions, these things did not merit them any higher place in God's kingdom. But because they believed they did, because they taught others in order to please God, first you must also do all of these things. Because they took away from the glory and majesty and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, they became enemies of the cross of Christ. 
and enemies of Christ, even though they themselves would not have called themselves that. How do they do that? Look, there are several ways. Paul says that their God is their belly. This is a way of saying like they, they, they are pursuing their own desires. What, what it is that they want, that's what they're chasing after. They haven't even submitted their desires to Christ and say, to say, Lord Jesus, is it, is it good for me to find fulfillment and satisfaction and righteousness and security in these things? They've pursued all these religious works, all these self-righteous works, because it gives them this fullness, this sense of satisfaction. We do the same thing. So much of the church has been consumed with with, uh, what has been called moralistic, therapeutic deism. We, We just want a God will tell us a few things to do so we feel better about ourselves. We just want God to be a therapist and tell us it's all okay. Tut, tut there. Feel good. Feel better about yourself. And so we pursue things that do that, wrapped up in the guise of religiosity, thinking that, Well, because I know a certain theology, God is more favorable toward me. Or because I I feel a certain way when I listen to praise and worship music, God must really be blessing me. Or we pursue this selfish desire to feel satisfied because our God isn't really Jesus, but our own belly. When we submit our desires to Christ, when we die to ourselves and follow Him, what the psalmist says, He gives you the desires of your heart. Which we'd like that to mean that that He gives us what we want. (laughs) But really, He reforms and shapes even your desires. He gives you new hearts that long for new things. Eternal things. It says that they glory in their shame. They are so proud of these. They have built up these mountains of self-righteous works. And And they glory in it. They don't even see that these things bring them shame before God. We do similar things when we pursue this this experiential, individual satisfaction. Like, let me just go out and do some things. Let me experience some things. Let Let me be some places. There's this whole ad campaign now from Expedia, right? Like, are the things that will really matter to you, all the things you have, or the places you go, the things you experience, feeds this this insatiable tendency of the human nature to go and do things and experience things to build up a treasury. Things that we can feel good about. Things that we can show God that we have done. Things that we can show others that we have done. 
Look, children, what I've done for you. Look, God, all the people that I served. Look at the mountain of righteousness that I have. Because I've experienced so many things. They glory in their shame because their minds are set on earthly things. They are not thinking about what it means to pursue Christ, who is risen from the dead, ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What does it look like for me to pursue Him and fellowship with Him my place with him, or as Jesus himself said, to to store up treasures in heaven. They're wrapped up in what they have in the here and now. And God's blessing upon them, they measure by what they have in the here and now. And in a materialistic and consumeristic culture, we are prone to do the same things. Oh, I'm going through a really tough time. And it causes us to wonder, where has God forgotten me? Has he abandoned me? But if we're at peace and have all the things that we want, we think that God is is favorably disposed towards us. Because we too can have an earthly mindset. Paul says that the the end of this way of thinking and living is destruction. It is a disaster waiting to happen. That's the end of idolatry. And it doesn't matter how much it masks itself as Christian. It doesn't matter where it tacks on a little Jesus here or there. Idolatry is idolatry. And it leads to destruction. There's a tendency in our culture to look at those who are opposed to us and, and, and when they fall, we dance on their graves. It's just a wonderful feeling to see them owned so totally. But Paul, Paul is overcome with grief, with tears, that there are people out there on a path that would lead them not to Jesus, but to utter destruction. He warns those in Philippi not to follow that same path, and he weeps for the lost. Do we? One of the the measures, I I think, I wonder, one of the measures of this idolatry that's wrapped up in Christianese is that us versus them mentality. We've got to be safe from them. We're fighting them. But when we see who we are before Christ, when when we see what it is we bring to the table, when we see what all of our righteous deeds actually measure up to, which is a bunch of filthy rags worthy to be thrown in the trash, when we learn what it means to count as rubbish everything 
in, in, in favor of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, when we see his glory and his majesty and his great love and care for those who have nothing to offer in return, there is no longer an us versus them. We want everyone to see the glory of Christ. when they don't, brings us to real grief and real sorrow and real tears. Do you have that? And such an awe of who Christ is that when others miss it, it grieves you. I have argued with people. That the original Star Wars trilogy is the best. And I have been dumbfounded that people would disagree with such an obvious statement. But I have let those who rejected Christ walk away, and it has not pricked my hard heart. What about you? May God work repentance in us so that we can do as Paul says. And learn to stand firm thus in the Lord. It's a a glorious image, standing, isn't it? There's not a lot that goes into it. Here I am. I'm standing. I could tell you my heart rate if I tap a few things, how much blood oxygen I have, and and it's just going to be even keeled the whole time. And so often, the New Testament talks about Christian discipleship in that way. Stand. Walk. In Christ. Sometimes we think that, that growing in the Lord, that, that sanctification, discipleship, is this great exertion of our own power to accomplish great things for God and so that he'll take notice of us and suddenly we've already slipped back into the way the Judaizers were thinking. The scriptures, and even here, constantly paint sanctification as a work of God's free grace. Paul, Paul tells us, like, in contrast to those whose end is destruction, our citizenship is in heaven. Is. It, it's already been purchased. Like, you don't have to do like the Romans do and, and buy your citizenship. It's been bought for you by Christ. In that place, citizens in the kingdom of heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a Savior. 
We're not awaiting Lord Jesus Christ to come as a Savior. We're awaiting a Savior. He's already saved us. He's already redeemed us. Death has lost its sting. Sin has no power over us. And we await for Him to come back to completely transform us, to be like Him fully and finally not with any earthly power or human exertion, but with the very power that he uses to make all things subject to him. Like to understand what Paul is saying, like to stand firm in this way in the Lord, to walk in the the path that the, the Lord Jesus Christ has set before us is to To stand because the very power of Christ is being exerted in you. You were lame, paralyzed. No, you were dead. It was impossible for you to stand this way in the Lord. Because of the power of Christ at work in you, you can't. It's impossible for you to walk in the way that he set before you. But, but he has already made the way. You are already citizens. The paperwork is yours. There is not a checkpoint you will meet that you can't have all the documents you need to pass freely through. He's done it. And so we wait like that, that is the Christian life. Standing in Christ, walking in Christ, waiting for Christ. These are not over-the-top things. You're not going to win any achievements or Olympic medals doing those things. You know, I, I saw they have the walking. They, all right, they've, they've gone from running the marathon, they have the walking marathon. If they have the sitting marathon, I will be a gold medalist. But what Paul is bringing us back to is when you think about your example that you set for others, it's woefully inadequate. When you think about your heart for the lost, it's woefully inadequate. For you to be a disciple of Christ, to be an apprentice to Jesus, is to see the glorious power of Christ at work in you and through you to be used of God so that you are an example for for others so that your heart does more and more break for those who don't yet know him so that you set all of your faith and hope and love all of your desires all of your glory at his feet because you see the surpassing worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the things that matter to him begin to matter to you because he is using his power to transform you to be more and more like him. So then, what is the biggest threat to our relevance in the world around us? Say, the biggest threat is that when people look at us, they will see us. They will see our power, our good works, our 
words, our righteousness, our goodness, our offerings. If they look at us and they see Jesus, how could we ever possibly be more relevant? May God work that in us and through us for his glory. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, We are, we, we are not up to the task. We do not have the power to make this happen. And perhaps that's the point. Perhaps you have sent these trials upon us to remind us deeply and viscerally that we cannot lean on our own power. We cannot rely on our own righteousness. We cannot trust even our own desires, but we must submit them all to you. Help us to do this. That we might stand firm in you, knowing who you are. That we might be used of you to show forth the glory of a Savior who can and will subject all things to himself. That we might be a beacon, hope and light and a life to the lost as you draw them to yourself. Help us to be that people, to be those disciples, and so to be a church that is a city on a hill in our culture and in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.